Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with Father Richard Rohr of the Center for Action and Contemplation. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hello, is that Father Rohr? Uh, yes, this is Richard Rohr. Hi, it's Krista Tippett. Hello, Krista. I'm sorry for whatever was happening, but <laughs> no, I was, anyway, I'm here at the studio. So the only thing that is for sure about this wondrous technology is that something <laughs> will go wrong every time, and it's always something it, different. It's amazing. <laughs> it I mean, is. my years of speaking on the road, there I would say two-thirds of the time there was microphone difficulty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, but here we Anyway, are. a delight to be yeah. with you. I remember just meeting you once there at Oprah's. Yes. And... Uh, I, I we haven't had the pleasure since. I know. I'm. I'm. I've been looking forward to this for such a long time. We've been oh, moving you. towards it for Me a long too. time. Um, yeah, I'm so pleased. And uh, are you? How are we? I think my balance is good. Okay. Do you want me to turn down my volume? Oh. Am I too loud? How's that? Okay. That's better. Okay, we're all set. <laughs> <laughs> let me um, let me just ask you um, something mundane, so we can get a little sound check mm -hmm. here. So, tell me uh, what you had for lunch. What did I have for lunch? Uh, <laughs> I had some shredded chicken in my refrigerator, and I put it between two pieces of bread. And it was very good. Okay. <laughs> I live in a little hermitage, so I cook for myself. Oh. Yeah. And you're in Albuquerque, is that right? That's right. Mm -hmm. You are now talking to New Mexico. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, I am so pleased. Um, I, I, cont I am continually amazed at the ripple effects that you send out into the world. The The number of people... Um, especially men, but not just men, who who reference you and read you and talk about how your work has um, made such an imprint on them. So, well, that makes me happy. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Well, I've just got in front of me. Uh, they sent me the first copy of the Divine Dance. Oh, it's my la latest book on the Trinity. Yes, it just came out today. So oh, it did. I'm all excited. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, uh -huh. so, so we'll start in a minute. But just you know, so you know, when we cre when we produce the show, we'll I'll I'll talk about you know your sent your the Living School and and Whatever the new you want to the talk new about. book and all of that. So we'll set all of that up. Okay, sounds oh, terrific. good. Okay. Um. Well, I would like to start where I start all of my conversations, um, just hearing a little bit about the spiritual background of your childhood. Really? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm 73, so I was raised in what we Catholics call pre-Vatican II <laughs> Catholicism. Right. And not only pre-Vatican II conservative, but I was raised in the state of Kansas, 
by German farm parents. So I had a very traditional upbringing, <laughs> but it also provided a wonderful safe container, as I like to call it. Yeah. And in some ways, it no way prepared me for what my life ha has done or what's happened to it. But in other ways, there's a straight line mm. from that very grounded beginning and uh, where I am now. Mm. And, and how did you discover the Franciscans or how did they discover you? You know, uh, now again, this is we're talking about the mid 1950s. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and if you, if a young boy had had any kind of inner God experience, and you were a Catholic, the only thing to do was to be a priest. Right. Right. Now, when I was in the eighth grade, I read a beautiful little book, probably fanciful by today's standards, called uh, "The Perfect Joy of Saint Francis." Mm. And I said, oh, my, I want to live a life like that. <laughs> then it so happened that a Franciscan from Cincinnati in full brown robe and white rope uh, came and talked to our eighth grade class. And he gave me this address off in Cincinnati. I went and joined, and uh, it's a decision I've never regretted. I've mm -hmm. had a wonderful life. So you, I wrote this down somewhere, you became, you entered the Franciscan order, became a friar, I believe, was it mm. 1961? That's when I took uh, mm -hmm. first vows. And how, That's right. took first vows. And how old were you then? Oh, it's, I, we'd never let someone do this today, so I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say it, but I was just 19, yeah, you know? Yeah, I think they wanted to get us before we met a girl or something. <laughs> <laughs> but but as, you do, as you describe um, in your writing, you the Franciscans then uh, gave you a broad liberal arts education. Yeah. Um, and, and, we really did. Right? Yeah. And you describe how this, this actually set off a very different second journey into yeah, rational yeah. complexity and also a, mm -hmm. a, a different spirituality, it seems. You know, I always feel like I was born at the perfect time. I was raised, of course, in the older, more stable world of the 1940s and 50s. And I that gave me enough security and groundedness. So when everything blew open in the 60s, that's when I was studying philosophy and theology hmm. uh, in this marvelous form that we were given, where we were really, as you said, given a liberal arts education, exposed to all of history and all of Christian history, too. Mm -hmm. we, we studied historical theology, not just giving you the Catholic conclusions, as it were, but the whole process of how did we come to this notion of grace? How did we come to this notion of Trinity or whatever it might be? Mm. And uh, little did I think, even though it was a very stringent form of education, God, we studied a lot, but little did I think how well it would serve me that I can speak now with a certain kind of self-confidence that I'm not unorthodox or I'm not crazy. <laughs> Maybe I am, but I have this assurance that, that I'm speaking out of the perennial tradition, you mm. know, that these are not just my ideas. Right. And that gives you a great confidence. A lot of people don't get that kind of education, that they're, they're speaking out of the perennial tradition. And, you know, I mean, I... 
I I've read you across the years. I I dipped oh, into a, yeah a number of books. Um, getting ready to be with you today. Um, I felt like there were so many di- different directions we could take this conversation. Oh, I, know. I kind of decided <laughs> to at least begin with um, with your work on falling upward, the second half of life. Oh, okay. And I think that that's right. kind of a personal choice because that's kind of where I, that's the juncture I'm at in, in my sure. life in a sense. Um, but uh, of course, it's not strictly chronological, which we'll talk about. That's um, right. Because it really it's a template for... That's for spiritual right. journey, right? For Very good. Uh, uh, and so, so, but you know what you just described, and you use some of the words that are and the images that are important to you in this talking about that that the preoccupation, and this I guess was a phrase of Carl Jung, popularized this notion of two halves of life. Yes, and that the preoccupations of the first half of life are there, and it's and that they have their place. Um, it is the raft, but not the shore. But but it is the mm-hmm. raft, and you've 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 been talking about both your 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 traditional, very stable uh, identity, the container of your identity of your upbringing, and then what the Franciscans gave you is that container or identity that is that critical work, um, essential work. Although everyone everyone doesn't have. Um, such stability in their container or identity as no, you did, which no. is what we all struggle with. I know. You know, the, what I've been using lately, Krista, is it's almost a simplistic metaphor, but I've been telling the students at the school, uh, picture three boxes, order, disorder, reorder. Mm. And that if you read the great myths of the world and the great religions— That's the normal path of transformation. Now, what conservative people want to do is just keep rebuilding the first box. Order, order, order at all costs, even if it doesn't fit the facts or fit reality. You know, what's difficult, and you just alluded to it, is so many people formed in the last 30 years were born into the second box. Right, don't have that order to begin with to reject and improve on. Exactly. (laughs) It's much harder to grow up Mm. if you were formed after 1968. Uh, And and, uh, yet what I always tell the folks is there's no nonstop flight from order to reorder. (laughs) You've got to go through the disorder. Your your salvation project, as Thomas Merton called it, it has to fall apart because it's not really love of humanity or God or truth. It's pretty much love of yourself. You don't know that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's not wrong. In fact, it's quite appropriate. Right. But uh, you, uh, what the great religions are talking about, and I'm certainly talking about in the book Falling Upward, uh, is this necessary confrontation with the tragic, the absurd, what St. Paul would call for Christians, the folly of the cross. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that, that disorder is part of the deal. And that's so counterintuitive, I know. Well... And, you know, you also say, you know, very, and it's just, it just makes so much sense. It's, just, it's such an interesting, different way to analyze this. But that we live in a first half of life culture. Culture. That and most church. groups and institutions, <laughs> right, including yeah. religious institutions. That's right. Um, are, are in that order box. And as you say, 1968 happened. 
Um, but the the um, you know these hallmarks of that that striving, as you say, to survive successfully, uh, yes. which which has its absolutely pl- its place. Um, we didn't necessarily outgrow that or move all the way to meaning uh, in no. our institutional life or or even no. culturally. You know, if I said before that the conservative, which is where I was first raised, if they keep rebuilding the first box, so many progressive, academic, uh, liberal, educated folks, they just keep sloshing around in the second box (laughs) and almost resist any sense of order. I think of how the word disruption has become this catchword of the technological revolution. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a perfect example of it. Yeah. And, um, you know, that makes it hard. Well, I, I frankly, I'm no psychotherapist, but when I see the high amount of eccentric, unstable, mentally unhealthy people I meet today in almost every context— there's got to be some connection that yeah. I, I find I give these retreats and I talk about prayer and healing and transformation, but it's very hard to heal people in an unhealthy, unhealed culture. And you, you send them back and the incoherence of our uh, system uh, sort of showing itself in our politics today just undoes whatever moment of sanity, whatever moment of truth or freedom you might offer a person. Yeah, I've I've been thinking that that in some ways our our current political life is like a caricature of everything that was wrong with the twentieth century. Wow. <laughs> I think a lot of us are thinking that. Yeah. It's it's frightening. Uh And as many are even saying, this might be a bigger threat to our national security, Mm. our political ineptitude. (laughs) Well, so Uh, let's talk a little bit about what the so the move the move from from the order that is necessary to you know um, through to to from 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 the raft to the shore. Let's say Um, the. Because, because you know, part of the reason, um, you know, as you say, this is a choice each of us has to do this kind of shift to meaning, this trajectory to meaning, uh, is not. It's it's we are free to make that walk that path or not. Yeah. Um, and it's not. Um, it it involves crossover points, which uh, yes. which involve as you you know as you use this phrase necessary suffering, which is not something as human creatures we are uh, drawn <laughs> like to do <laughs> uh, willingly. <clears throat> That's right. Yeah, we have to be led through it. You know, all the ancient myths, the Greek myths, the German myths. They they might have spoken with language of spirits or angels or voices or now we speak of Star Wars forces. But what they were all intuiting was the same thing, that this isn't a journey that the private individual in one small lifetime can figure out and engineer for himself. There's always this deep sense of an allowing of it being done unto you. Now, I know that sounds very traditional, 
but it's so universal that I have to trust it. <laughs> uh, that it, you, you can't figure it out all by yourself and on top of that, do it right all by yourself. So it is done unto you. And, of course, that takes 500 pounds off your back when you recognize that your primary role is to get out of the way. (laughs) Although it's often in those, the opening to that um, in human life, um, as you write about so, um, so richly, is that it, we we often have to be kind of brought to our knees. It's 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 moments of transition. So? It's moments like, of crisis. It's thresholds. Yeah. It's facing our shadows. Yeah. yeah, there's no other way, Krista. The human ego will give up control and hand over control until it has to. <laughs> Why would we? And you know the twelve steppers have discovered this. They call it the first step, yeah. the admission of powerlessness. Uh, But who of us would take on suffering voluntarily? It it pretty much has to be forced onto us. And it is a con. It is not a constant of life, but a very predictable no. occurrence in life again and again. Very predictable. Yeah. I mean, uh, the Buddha is even supposed to have said, "Suffering is part of the deal." Yeah. <laughs> it's part. <laughs> That's of the a deal. translation from the Pali, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> My translation. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there's this. So, just to echo what you just said, um, I mean, Joseph Campbell is someone who, at another mm. era in American life, yes. kind of gave yes. voice to this. And you, you quote from him, and there, there is this um, beautiful quote from him about that, that mythological trajectory. Um, that uh, I and I've just been bumping into this everywhere I turn. So I'm going to read it. Really? Uh, yeah, just suddenly in the last wow. month. Um, we have not even to risk the adventure alone. For oh, the, yes. Yeah, for ahead. the heroes of all one. time have gone before us. The labyrinth is thoroughly known. We have only to follow the thread of the hero path. Yeah. Here it is. And where we had thought to find an abomination, we shall find a god. And where we had thought to slay another, we shall slay ourselves. And where we had thought to travel outward, we shall come to the center of our own existence. And where we had thought to be alone... We shall be with all the world. Isn't that brilliant? It oh. is brilliant. Oh, God, to say that much in one paragraph. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> now, but what I also have been thinking about, um, and it very much seems relevant to me in the context of your work of really bringing these, these, these ideas and templates, this ancient wisdom, our modern realities to modern people. You know, one of the catchphrases that came down in American culture from the encounter with Joseph Campbell, uh, a lot of it through Bill Moyers, was follow your bliss. Oh, yes. Right? And to me, yes. that also is a kind of shorthand that epitomizes the first half of life <laughs> as opposed yes. to that hard, yes. risky work beyond it. It's not follow your bliss is not a good shorthand and it's not enough, but it's a very kind of American saying. Yeah, it is. It appeals. We can hear it. But, uh, <laughs> you know, Jesus would be a little beyond that when he says, take up your cross, which is yeah. not so attractive, you know. Yeah. But he's he's much more leading us into the second half of life. Right. Yeah, yeah. You figured that out, yeah. It, 
it seems important to me that um, that you stress, although there there is a true progression of life that comes uh, with age, which is about a about a, an accumulation of experience, right? But that this is not necessarily chronological, and no. right that everybody doesn't become an elder. It's some That's people right. just get old, and it's also possibly <laughs> possible to be old and childish. But yeah, but I sure also is. experience, sure and I wonder if you have this experience too that there's there's this there's an important swath of the young among us who are yeah. rejecting uh, that caricature of the 20th century, who are really even at a young age um, seeking a fuller and farther vision of who they want to be and how that is distinct from what they want to do or what they've been taught. You know, I gave a retreat two weekends ago in Santa Fe for 40 millennials. Mm -hmm. And uh, what some of them have done already for the poor in Africa, starting not-for-profits that care about this cause or that cause. And they, you know, conversed with me for a full weekend with some of the most mature, grounded, humble responsive understanding to what I was saying, just proving the proof of what you just said. Some of the young people today feel like old souls. Yes. (laughs) And some of my generation feel like old fools. You know, it's like, (laughs) God, have they learned anything, anything. It's it's frightening. And it's exciting. Right, right. It's (laughs) both. Yeah. Uh A phrase that you use a lot... Um, that I'd like you to just flesh out is an aspect of this progression towards meaning, towards spiritual fullness, is uh, living in deep time. Mm. Tell just, just say what you're saying there. Okay. Well, let me say, first of all, I'm not sure what I mean by that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, a phrase that was used in medieval... Uh, Catholic spirituality was the eternal now. When time comes to its fullness is the biblical phrase. Uh, I'm sure you've been told that in the Greek, in the New Testament, there's two words for time. Chronos is chronological time. Time is duration, one moment after another. And that's what most of us think of as time. But there was another word in Greek, kairos, And kairos was deep time. It was when you have those moments where you say, oh, my God, this is it. I get it. Or this is as perfect as it can be. Or it doesn't get any better than this. Or this moment is summing up the last five years of my life. You know, things like that. Where time comes to a fullness and uh, the, the dots connect. When we can learn how to more easily go back to those kind of moments or to live in that kind of space. Now, I think that's what the tradition means by the word contemplation. Mm, mm. To be a contemplative is to learn to trust deep time and to learn how to rest there and not be wrapped up in chronological time. Because what you've learned, especially by my age, is that all of it passes away. (laughs) The things that you're so impassioned about when you're 22 or 42 
don't even mean anything anymore. And yet you got so angry about it or so invested in it. Uh, So, you know, already the desert fathers and mothers discovered this word contemplation because I believe they found the word that most believers use, the word prayer, to be so trivialized, so cheapened by misuse Mm. Prayer was sort of a functional thing you did to make announcements to God or to tell God things, <laughs> uh, which God already knew, of course. And they created another word to give us access to this deep time. And that word that kept recurring throughout the 2,000-year history of Christianity was the contemplative mind. It's a different form of consciousness it's a different form of time. We, let me add one thing. We used to, in Latin, use this phrase, subspecie eternitate. And the old professors used to say, uh, subspecie eternitate. What it means, in the light of eternity. Hmm. In the light of eternity, this thing that you're so worried about right now, is it really going to mean anything on your deathbed? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And for some reason... That had the power to relativize the things that a young man would get so impassioned about, positively or negatively. And that's, those were various ways of directing us toward deep time. Thanks for asking the question. You know, I also experience in your writing, this is the way I wrote it down, and I don't know if you say it this way, but one of the one of the qualities of of the first half of life or like the early part of the spiritual life is dualistic thinking. Yes. Um and that's I, almost all we have left. Yeah, right. And yeah. that's another it's another way our culture is in the first half of life. Oh, yeah. But yeah. but I kind of hear you saying also that contemplation is is a very powerful antidote to dualistic yes. thinking. Yes. You want me to talk about it? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Let me say, first of all, Krista, to cover my bases, I'm not going to say that dualistic thinking is bad, per se, Mm -hmm. and non-dual is good, or I'd be dualistic, wouldn't I? (laughs) Okay, I'll hold you to that. All right. So we've got to succeed at clear-headed, non-fuzzy thinking. That's what education is about, Mm -hmm. to teach you to make healthy distinctions, uh, to talk with clarity. And I want to say that first of all, because so many people who come up to us religious folks and say, God told me, and and, uh, I heard from the Spirit, you find out they think they're at the non-dual level, but they really aren't. Do you understand? Mm. Yeah. So, okay. So, the, the normal way to get us through the day, I just drove over here where I'm recording this from my house about 10 minutes away. And to turn right or left, I needed a good dualistic mind. Do you understand? Yeah. <laughs> to even find the address or whatever it might be. So to get through the day, to be an engineer, a, a mechanic, a, a medical professional, you better have a good dualistic mind. But then you hit a ceiling. I write about this in my book, The Naked Now. Above the ceiling, in the book I said there were five things. Since I wrote the book, I've added a sixth. But the five I first of all mentioned were 
any honest notion of love. Secondly, death. Thirdly, suffering. Fourth, any notion of infinity or eternity. The dualistic mind cannot process that. Oh, you know? Okay. That's why when these space people come on and talk about the amount of galaxies and stars, the mind just closes down. We, we can't think in infinite numbers. And um, any honest talking about God, we're dealing with mystery, which is why I wrote this recent book on the Trinity. Right. But the, the sixth one I've added is sexuality. I'm convinced that the entire phenomenon of sexuality is in the realm of mystery and why we haven't given the world good sexual morality is we've tried to deal with it rationally okay <laughs> and it just doesn't work it doesn't work it's not a do uh, the only things that are subject to uh, rationality are dualistic things that can be either or right but non-dual is where you move into both and, where you don't look for all or nothing thinking. And we're seeing it in our political debates today. It's almost the only form of conversation left is all or nothing thinking. And it's amazing to me that we could have this many universities in this country and could have this many churches and synagogues and mosques and have so many people still at such a low level of consciousness that they read everything in terms of either or. And that's why all of the world religions, not just Christianity, discovered that you needed a different kind of software uh, to deal with, with mysterious things, holy things. And that software is, contem is contemplation. contemplation. The mm. contemplative mind. Right. It's, it's like putting on a different head where, uh, let me describe it this way, Krista. You let the moment, the event, the person, the new idea come towards you as it is without labeling it, analyzing it up or down, in or out, for me or against me. It just is what it is, what it is, what it is without my label. Hmm. You have, at this point in history, you have to teach people how to do that. Right. Because none of us are taught how to do that. And that, that, for me, says that religion has not been doing its job for several hundred years. Because that's what we were supposed to evolve people to, a higher level of consciousness that would allow them to do things like love their enemies, right. overlook right. offenses. Yeah, that's non-dualistic you know. thinking for you right but, there. Yeah. Love your well, enemies. The whole Sermon on the Mount of yeah. Jesus yeah. implies non-dual thinking. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think you said Jesus was the first non-dualistic religious thinker in the West. Uh, of the West, yeah. that's right. Yeah. The East had them, mm -hmm. and the Eastern languages are much more open to it. Mm -hmm. But the West went through Greek clarity, and Greek logic was, you know, A cannot be B, and B cannot be A. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even though, as I say in my new book on the Trinity, the Trinity was made to order to undercut dualistic thinking because you cannot process that God could be both one and three at the same time with a dualistic mind, that is. <clears throat> it's such an interesting um, 
almost thought experiment to put modern people through to start talking about the Trinity because I know, right? I know. Well, because it was, I was embarrassed because I said <laughs> people are going to dismiss this. <laughs> well, yeah, because it, um, just as a concept thrown out there, um, mm. and given that that people don't actually, as you say, learn a lot of theology, even if they do a lot oh. of church necessarily. Um, it feels like one of those fanciful, yeah. you know, yes. how many angels can dance on the head yes. of a pin yeah. notions. Um, and for you to be presenting it as uh, something that forces us to a higher consciousness is quite fresh. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, thank you for hearing it that way. You know, I'm going to say something shocking, but the the operative God image that most Western Christians operate with, and Jews and Muslims are pretty much the same, is a monarchical figure, uh, uh, an unmoved <coughs> mover, as, as uh, Aristotle would say, sitting on some cloud somewhere, yeah. trying to direct the universe with very little success. He, and he's always, he's always a he, first of all, and he's always <laughs> a critical spectator. You know, critical and spectator. The doctrine of the Trinity absolutely undercuts all of that. God is not a being. God is the relationality of being itself. Mm. And uh, that is a real mind switch for most people. But the, the Orthodox Christians, without knowing it, are still operating with a largely pagan notion of God. Let me give you a little bit of yeah, proof Yeah, say of some that. more about that. The, the, the Latin word for God is Deus, D-E-U-S. It's a direct transliteration into Latin from Zeus, <laughs> this right, right. Greek god sitting on a throne, male throwing down thunderbolts, which transmuted into Santa Claus, making a list, checking it twice, <laughs> going to find out who's naughty or nice. Right. <laughs> this just won't work. Do you, do you know atheism and agnosticism is largely a phenomenon of Western Christianity because we let people settle for this infantile, right. There's, it's not, nonsensical, it's nonsensical notion of God. Yes. And then when suffering came, when mystery came, when death approached, when absurdity showed itself, all you could do to maintain your sanity was to throw out the baby with the bathwater, you know? Mm-hmm. I remember I gave a retreat in India years ago to hundreds of priests, and this priest picked me up at the Mumbai airport, and he said, uh, Richard, welcome to India. You won't meet many atheists in India. And then we both sat in silence for a few moments, and he said, well, actually, you will meet a few atheists in India, but they all went to Catholic schools. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, I'm still a Catholic priest in good standing, so yeah. I want to say that. But you, uh, you, re- you realize the point he was making. Yes. Uh, yeah. That we train him in such a rational, inadequate, puppeteer God. And when, when we couldn't manipulate this God or this God didn't give us what we wanted, to survive, we pretty much had to stop believing in God. So when I say we have a pagan notion of God, nothing wrong with pagans, by the way. They just meant the people who lived out in the countryside. But, um, 
it, uh, it, it's unworkable. And especially, let me add one thing. Here's where science, quantum physics is helping us so much today. Yes, I was going to say that that, that God who 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 yeah. sits that man who sits up there and <laughs> passes the judgment hasn't read much physics either. Yeah, because <laughs> suddenly, for anybody educated in science, we have a universe that is much more majestic, momentous uh, than our our normal notion of God. That can't be true. God, if there is a God, God has to be at least as big as the universe that God created. Mm. And now the Hubble telescope, we're the first generation who knows it. Yes. You know, we know that it is still expanding the universe and we can prove that. And it's even expanding at a quicker and quicker rate. And so you're supposed to just sit in awe and say, if there is a God, who, what is God? <laughs> and that's good. You know, Einstein said the first legitimate religious intuition was wonder and awe. Yeah. And I think that's correct. Don't you think also we're the generation where the Hubble telescope and other technologies like that are and are bringing these images of majesty yeah. and beauty and mystery yeah. like into people's yeah. living rooms. Yes. And that's affecting us? It's got to. It's got to have affected the psyche. And people who are willing to, let me use a classic phrase, kneel and kiss the ground, stand almost weeping before the beauty of it all. These are the religious instincts that I think are going to create the future. Hmm. And I'm afraid, as a clergyman myself, I don't think organized Christianity is fostering that kind of seeing, that kind of humility, that kind of inclusivity. We're mainly known for being an exclusionary institution. <laughs> and, you know, my first best-selling book was called Everything Belongs. Yeah. And I said for years... The only reason I think it sold well, and I mean that sincerely, is the title. The <laughs> title, Everything Belongs, people just would read that title and say, you know, it has to be true. <laughs> if it's here, it belongs. And uh, I think we're ready for that. And um, and I think that the the following you have, the the way your words and teachings and and speaking and your your uh, your work um, touch people. Yeah. I mean, I was reading, um, just getting ready to talk to you, I found this blog on the Pathos blog, um, somebody named Mark Longhurst, who, I'm just going to read a little bit of it. Nearly 1,500 people converged in New Mexico two weeks ago for Richard Rohr's second Conspire Conference and Living School Symposium. Our vocations differed, and our geographical homes stretched from Vancouver to Tokyo, but we all shared a common thirst to drink from the well of mystical Christianity. And then he goes on to say that he he has a Master's of Divinity, two rooms really? and a basement full of theology, but had never experienced a contemplative form of prayer. Yeah, so, oh yeah. right, what a you're describing, yeah, yeah, and it's so. So when you what you say is when you offer that, when you introduce that. There's a great longing for it mm. and a great curiosity about it. It is so humbling, it. Krista, when you see adult people just, uh, you know, slip into such a 
a beautiful peace and a beautiful freedom and a beautiful compassion. It's not this emotional religion that we've uh, come to expect uh, emotional religion should be, but just a quiet contentment, a quiet deepening, a quiet satisfaction that I think the universe that I'm a part of is beginning to make sense. Hmm. And I'm a part of it. Hmm. I'm a part of it. And therefore, I make sense. <laughs> See, I, I'm convinced that the discovery of a true God and the discovery of the true self are simultaneous journeys, and, right. and they feed one another. When you, when you meet the true self, you're most open to a, a bigger, truer name for God. When you meet a, a bigger, truer, more loving God, you surrender to that same identity within yourself. And I, I think that starts to point also at um, the, the work you do with men in particular. I mean, it's not, you don't just work with men, but male spirituality, male growth. Yeah. Um, and this is very striking to me, again, as I hear you, as I hear people talk about you, as people quote you to me, um, uh, it's it's often men who say that they that they yeah. that this this was their entry point and they hadn't yeah. had an entry point to having a spiritual life an inner life, um, and it's connected as you said, um, you know you you talk about the the ways men in this culture have been <clears throat> taught and formed to strive for sex and prestige and possessions and titles. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is very much that stuff of the first, the first, first half, half of life, of life. Yep. Um, and then in particular, and that in fact is it has been a straitjacket and uh, an impediment yeah. to spiritual journey. Yeah. I mean, obviously these are generaliz- generalizations, but yeah. I know that it makes sense to me about the men in my life. Certainly, yes. you know, my father yeah. and his generation, yes. and it obviously makes sense to a lot of men you meet because. I hear men talking about you everywhere I go. In the early 90s, I started reading everything I could cross-culturally on this rather universal phenomenon of male initiation, that on every continent, culture after culture, it was never assumed that the young male naturally grew up. Uh, He had to be taught. He had to be carefully taught, as Rogers and Hammerstein would put it. And that was called initiation. Uh, So I, after reading these, oh, I don't know how many books, it all began to come together because the patterns were so similar. Uh, Basically, here was the assumption that cultures came to. And at this point in history, I don't think it needs much proof that unless the male was led on journeys of powerlessness, he would always abuse power. (laughs) And I know that seems damning, but the male just can't handle power unless he's somehow touched upon vulnerability, powerlessness. And it's no surprise, that's the first step of the 12-step program. So I created a five-day event. We started doing them here in New Mexico at Ghost Ranch in 1996 uh, to try to compress what was often several weeks or several months, but I knew I could never get men away that long, 
to try to give them a, a, a distilled experience of classic male initiation. Hmm. And as you said, uh, the response has been overwhelming. It's moved into 13 different countries now and so forth. And, uh, it just I just got an email from the Czech Republic right before <laughs> I came over here about the, they're just ending them today outside of Prague and 150 men are attending and it, it's very gratifying. So I, I, I'm grateful that God gave me a language that made sense to men hmm. because a large percentage of men don't even take religion seriously. Well, good and our, reason. Yeah, and our, and our, our institutions <laughs> yeah. are uh, predominantly run, run and peopled and served by women. I mean, that's just a fact. That's a fact. Yeah. The nurturing, healing professions tend to be much more led by women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about some of the observations you make, some of the things you have heard and that are involved in your training. And actually, I want to say, it's you, you, you spent um, a number of years as a chaplain at the Albuquerque Jail. Yes, it seems to me years. that this formed yeah. this this intensified your sense of urgency around this also around around men. the male issue in yeah. particular. Krista, I was jail chaplain here a few blocks from where I'm sitting right now uh, for 14 years, and if there was one universal I found among the men in particular, but the certainly the the young women too, was it was rare, if not never to to find someone in jail who had a good father <laughs> that's what got me you know just driven toward we we've got to start growing up men because mm -hmm. the male of the species does not know how to hand on his identity his intimacy his caring to his children mm -hmm. uh and and the, the rage in the young male who never had a dad or had an alcoholic father or emotionally unavailable father or abusive father is, is bottomless. It's just, it, it moves out toward all of society. Hmm. A mistrust of all authority, all authority figures, all policemen, of course. Uh, because if my dad abandoned me, I just basically don't trust older men. Hmm. And I don't like older men. Now, you can see what a bind this put us in when we define God as masculine right. and called God Father exclusively. That's one metaphor, but it is a metaphor. And so people who never had a loving male in their life, and we come along and say, God the Father loves you, hmm. they have no outlet to plug into. And that was my experience 14 years at the jail. Yeah. I'd go in these cells, and, I mean, these young guys would almost worship me because <laughs> yeah. they'd never had an older man give them respect, give them attention. You used the language time. of father hunger. Yeah, yeah father hunger. It's, it's driving so many things in our culture. Even this... This whole corporate world of the younger male's need to please the big daddy and get his pat on the back or his promotion. Oh, I think it's such know. a mystery of the human condition I know, uh, I know. that 
we that also I mean you in some place you described someone speaking to you about this father hunger kind of in the middle of their life and realizing calling it saying they realized it was a chasm a canyon well, the emptiness and pain left of a relationship with the father that wasn't there and <clears throat> um the mystery that uh we can get very old, and that can still be with us, right? Oh yeah. That this is not I've, something that you just outgrow, and no, it's it's no. it's incredible how we can be defined by these these broken relationships across a lifespan. Yeah, I've had men older than me weep with me, still wanting a daddy, because <laughs> they never had a father figure. It's heartbreaking, really. You say something that I just want to understand more. You say that when positive masculine energy is not modeled from father to son, it creates a vacuum in the souls of men, and into that vacuum, demons pour. And you say, among other things, they seem to lose the ability to know how to read situations and people correctly. Mm. Why is that? I mean, obviously, that can be crippling professionally, personally, but why, why is, what is that connection? Here's the answer that comes to mind now. I don't know if it's the best mm-hmm. one. But I, young men who haven't been validated by an older male, because we look to our same-sex parent for our validation. And when dad doesn't tell me I'm a man or a good man or acceptable son, I think your first 30 years of life are so frantic. Uh, you don't have time to read inner emotions. Your your emotional life, there's no subtlety to it. There's no nuance. There's no freedom. There's no grace. There's no time. It's just you see this dazed, crazed look. I often see it in airports. In 46 years, I was on the road, and you'd see these people rushing through airports, neither looking to right or left like a deer caught in the headlights. When you're a deer caught in the headlights trying to survive, I don't think you develop an inner world. You understand? Mm -hmm. Your entire performance principle is outer. How can I make money? How can I look good? How can I dress classy? How can I have... The right job. uh, Trophy sex, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just the, the whole life is externalized. And the, the soul is not born. And that, that's why, again, suffering for so many becomes the only path. Because it's the only thing strong enough to lead you into the world of grief, for example, or sadness or pain. And those tend to be the holes in the soul that awaken the inner world. Right. So... So you have to grieve that loss and experience that sadness yeah. to, to move. Grief, to Robert Bly, who is up there in your city, I think. Yes, he is. I visited him several times when I spoke in Minneapolis. And he used to call grief the privileged emotion for the male. That it was the only emotion that he couldn't just blame somebody for. <laughs> he just had to sit there with it, damn it and feel this bottomless sadness, this Mm -hmm. unfinished hurt, as we called it on the initiation rites. 
And so an important part of every initiation rite was grief work, letting men, letting men get in touch with their unfinished hurt and begin to talk about it to other men. Mm-hmm. That's when the floodgates opened. <laughs> mm-hmm. And all of this success that they shined with externally, they finally could admit was all a charade. You know, that Everything changed after that. I guess that's another mystery of the human condition that yeah, yeah. that if we can let ourselves feel what we think might kill us, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's the only way to grow and, uh, to a place you, you, of being able to integrate it rather than be haunted by it. I'm sure you know this as a woman. Uh, I have found in the men's work that a lot of men are afraid to expose this to their wives. I'm not sure exactly why, but vulnerability is such a scary thing for a man. And somehow another male, the same way I'm sure you're with some of your women friends and you think, I think she can hold this. She can handle this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She can carry it with me and Mm -hmm. not make fun of me or not laugh at me. What I found on the men's retreats and the male initiation rites is that when a certain level of trust, vulnerability was achieved, men found it more open to talk to another man about this than even a woman. Now, afterwards, they would go home and blurt it all out to their wife, too. (laughs) But as much as they loved their wife, I think so many men are afraid of looking weak or vulnerable around their wife. Or their girlfriend. Right. Yeah. Ah, it's big stuff. Um, it is big stuff. <laughs> and let, let me throw in, since I just used the word vulnerable, you know, most of the official church prayers, at least in the Catholic world, begin with the same phrase over Almighty God, Almighty God. Right. Uh, if the shape of God is relationship, that God is inherently a flow between perfect love of three, then uh, we have to change at least half of the prayers and balance out almighty with all vulnerable. Mm -hmm. That God empties out knowing he will be filled up, Father, Son, to Holy Spirit, in an eternal water wheel of mercy, an eternal water wheel of compassion and love. That's such a different notion of God that you basically have to take your head off. But one reason we have created, and put a new one on, one reason we've created you know, so many atheists and agnostics is because none of us were told that God might be vulnerable, that mm-hmm. God might be suffering. It's like a totally unthinkable notion. It's about as opposite as you can imagine. And yet I think of some of the Jewish mystics uh, like Anne Frank, Eddie Hillison, Simone Weil. Here they were all Jewish. They didn't even look on the cross the way Catholics or Christians do. And they all agreed, God suffers, <laughs> which is just sort of unthinkable. Yeah. God is suffering with the suffering of the world. In fact, all of the suffering of the world is one universal divine suffering. And we're participating with God in it. That suddenly reshapes 
every bit of suffering you've ever had. It gives it meaning. And that's all we need, really, is meaning. You know, what you're talking about with such ease is so, is so mysterious and strange. I know. I know. It's strange, right? It, 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 strange is a word. No. <laughs> Um, (laughs) It was Niels Bohr said the universe is not only stranger than we think, but stranger than we can think. Right. I'd say the same about God as Trinity, stranger than we can think. And, you know, I have found, well, I say two things. I, you know, I've been having this kind of conversation for almost 15 years now. And Mm. I am really listening to our cultural encounter with the, with these questions and these traditions and and these longings and i i feel like the word god is making a comeback right like 15 years ago um i mean i hear i hear people reaching for that word and and giving a you know uh, you know with a sense of the mystery of it and uh, the complexity of it i think I think I found myself in recent years reaching for it less often because it's just such a small word for such a strange, yes. huge yes. thing. And yes. I, because yes. I couldn't tell you yeah. what I mean when I say God. Yeah, and I can't either. I feel like I shouldn't <laughs> use the word. Um, yeah, that's right. But, that's right. but you know, I do want to kind of dwell with your ability to, to speak about God. Um, you know, here's something I wrote that you, you know, you wrote, Anyone who has any authentic inner experience knows that God is only beauty, mercy, and total embrace, and nothing but beauty, mercy, and total embrace. Well, I'm glad I wrote that. <laughs> so, so I think there are many people who would hear that and know what you're talking about. You know, I think mm. Rob Bell, who I loved the interview he did with you, who yeah, kind of comes out of the evangelical world. Um, it's very, uh, kind of, yeah. ev- you know, a kind of evolutionary Christian. You know, he's, he, when he interviewed, he said, you've put language to what we, what we felt deep in our bones. But to many people, that language itself would be, again, just... So impossible to impossible to take seriously. Distant idealization or something, yes. Yeah. Well, you know, Karl Rahner, the German Jesuit, who was the expert at Vatican II. I forgot that he was a Jesuit. Yes, he was Great a Jesuit. Catholic theologian. He used to visit yeah. his tomb in Innsbruck. Mm-hmm. But he said back in the early 60s that um, uh, he would suggest we stop using the word God for 50 years because <laughs> we don't have a clue what we're talking about. <laughs> and the people who talk about it most glibly are usually the ones who have the least inner experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that's not much of an overstatement. You know, I'd like to talk just for a minute about your grounding in Franciscan tradition. Um, oh, I'd love to. Because I think that also forms the way you... You know, and I think some people say you critique religion from within. I think that's too glib. You know, you you've talked about yourself as being on the edge of the inside. Um, but I think that's what monasticism really historically yes. was at its yes, root. Yes, historically was. That's yeah. right. So talk to me about what being Franciscan, how mm-hmm. that gives you a, a you know how that f- 
informs your sure. relationship with church and Christianity writ large? I'd love to, but we've only got a few minutes. But let me say <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a few things. You know, it was sort of summarized in the modern period when this Jesuit pope took the name Francis. Yes, exactly. And, of course, we were overjoyed. Yes. Now, any from, anybody from inside the Catholic world got the shock of it because St. Francis of Assisi is a non-establishment saint. You understand? Mm -hmm. He was not an intellectual. He was not a theologian. He was not ordained a priest. You know, he was an outsider, 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 who nevertheless is probably the most beloved of all the Catholic saints. Um, and uh, we always knew, although we, we became very compromised in history too, but we called ourselves in-house an alternative orthodoxy. Right, I've seen that, that language in you, yeah. the Franciscan alternative orthodoxy. Yeah, yeah. That we, you know, when Catholic was the only game in town in the yeah. 13th century, you, if you were Christian, you had to be Catholic. There weren't Protestants yet, yeah. and so we uh, we had to learn to survive into this overarching inside this overarching Roman institution, and so we we for good and for ill we found a way to to be Catholic, and yet. A lot of the pretenses, if if I can call them that, of you know dressing up and and the seeking of power and office and control and money and the very things Francis rejected, we recognize that so much of the clergy were caught up in. So we always downplayed priesthood. You know, for example, the early Franciscans, none of them were priests. Now here I am right. a priest. They were friars. Uh, we were friars. And you so were ordained right. as a priest separately in 1970. Seven years just, after I was yeah, a Franciscan. Separate right. And in many ways, that was a compromise. Do you understand? Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Because once you buy, you know, become the party man, you've got to speak the company line. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of things you can't say anymore mm -hmm. that you know are true or are not true. And I've had enough priests tell me this now, you know, don't get elected the head of anything because then you've got to, you've got to represent it yeah. and put its best face forward, which is what got us into this pedophilia crisis, you know, mm -hmm. that we couldn't even speak the truth about that. Right. So on a number of theological issues, we won't have time to go into them here. Uh, maybe the most well-known one is the atonement theory. We, we were never the majority position. But in the 13th century, we were more broad-minded in many ways than we were in later centuries. Mm -hmm. For example, we'd have great debates at the University of Paris. And usually we Franciscans would lose the debate because we weren't the intellectuals. <laughs> <laughs> but now, 800 years later, on issue after issue, ecology, nonviolence, the yeah. atonement, uh, our opinion, which was the minority opinion, the alternative orthodoxy, is now winning the day. Well, well, so it's really a good time to be Franciscan. Yeah, well, define really uh, the atonement question for people who who don't know okay. what you what that. I don't carries. want to drive away all I... my evangelical friends, <laughs> <laughs> because for if you're raised evangelical, mm -hmm. this is one of the four pillars, and it's probably summed up in the phrase that you've seen on billboards in Texas and Tennessee, Jesus died for your sins, yeah. all right? 
That's based on what they call the penal substitutionary atonement theory. John 3.16. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I okay. grew up Southern Baptist. Now, they don't realize that already in the... Th- 13th century, that was roundly disagreed with, that that God had to be talked into loving his creation. That can't be true, the Franciscans said, you know. God has to be ultimate freedom to love whatever God wants to love. And if he needs blood sacrifice to open the gates of heaven, to use these metaphors, that God couldn't love God's creation organically, inherently, So we had a theology of original blessing, which is revealed in the first chapter of Genesis. Five times in a row it says, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. (laughs) And yet, most later theology began with the third chapter of Genesis. It was fallen. It was fallen. It was fallen. Uh, We began with original sin. You understand? Yeah. Instead of original blessing. So in the Franciscan school, we began very much with this notion of creation spirituality, that God loved what God created from the very first moment of the Big Bang. And God did not need to be talked into loving by a blood sacrifice. That's the penal substitutionary atonement theory, which to us, and I don't mean to disrespect anybody, I don't want to hurt anybody, but it was always sort of laughable to us that Mm. God just decided to care 2,000 years ago. You mean the first 16 (laughs) billion years God had nothing to do? (laughs) So creation and divine love are coterminous in our alternative Orthodoxy, and now this this is roundly winning the day. That's right. It's called it's the twenty first century theology. Yeah, the nonviolent yeah. atonement theory. Here's something you wrote, um, which seems to me a lovely kind of summation of the Franciscan charism. You wrote, Franciscan mysticism is indeed mysticism, but it is especially poised and prepared to lead people, not just to inner experience but to the possibility of daily and regular experience yes, in the depth yes, and beauty yes. of the ordinary. But yes. then you, you go on to say, this is it's, to, to describe the complexity of that, because it's not just simple, right? You say, especially no. because it incorporates seeming negative and, and yeah. moves our life to its hard edges, making yeah. things like failure, tragedy, and suffering the quickest doorways to the encounter of God. All can now enter if they are honest about their poverty. You are a good student. You've read some of my better stuff. Is that <laughs> Eager to Love that you're quoting from? Yes, that's, that's yeah, an Eager yeah, to Love. Good. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the Franciscan genius was the incorporation of the negative, so-called. That the problem... You know, just can I just say before you keep going, you know, to, which I think to somebody who's just heard what you've just said might sound like a contradiction. It's yeah. like starting with original <laughs> blessing, but incorporating uh, the negative. Okay. Well... You start with original blessing, remember, order, disorder, reorder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the second box, you have to start with the positive. You have to start, I always say, with yes, mm-hmm. with a foundational yes to reality. 
then you find somewhere in the middle of life, we hope we can protect our children from it as long as possible, but you discover the fly in the ointment. Yeah, and we can't protect our children That's what I'm calling the negative yeah. or the tragic sense of life. Mm-hmm. Divine perfection is the ability to include imperfection. Right. Human perfection doesn't know how to do that. We try to exclude imperfection. You know, when I first came to New Mexico, I was a deacon here at Acoma Pueblo in 1969, and that's when I fell in love with New Mexico. And my classmates were working out on the Navajo Reservation a little farther west. And I remember going out and watching these Navajo women weaving these Navajo rugs. I don't know if you've ever seen, I'm sure you have somewhere, a beautiful woven Navajo rug. Right, right. If you look at it carefully, there will always be among the perfect symmetry of the design in one little corner. It's always there if it's a true Navajo rug. There is one obvious mistake, <laughs> one obvious imperfection. And the Navajos, so many native religions had such wisdom. They said this was how the spirit mm-hmm. got into the rug. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? Yes. Through the through the wound, or it's Leonard Cohen. Exactly. There's a crack in everything. Yeah. That's how the light gets in. Yeah. So I think that's at the heart of Franciscan spirituality, mm. loving the crack instead of seeking to create the so-called normal. Yeah. And that's what always gets us into trouble. Mm-hmm. That's why we can't deal with gay people. We can't deal with black people. We can't deal with anybody who isn't so-called normal. Mm-hmm. And it's just undone Christianity. It really mm-hmm. has. Mm-hmm. It's just why we're known as an exclusionary institution. Because mm-hmm. we're always who isn't normal, you know, as if we are, of course. That's, <laughs> that's the false <laughs> assumption that the whole thing is based on. Um, so yeah. does that make sense? Yes, it does. And it, it, it kind <laughs> of um, it brings me to something else I wanted to ask you about, which sure. is, you know, just coming sure. back to this both and thinking that is uh-huh. that is that is a quality of, you know, the second half of life of spiritual deepening. Um, you know, when you, you talk about this quality of bright sadness that mm. that that in that deepening, there is a gravitas and a lightness yes. both, yes. Um, which becomes a, a good student. You read. Good. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I just so it say say a little bit about the bright sadness. You know, I remember some of the times when I was most happy after I used to spend the whole of Lent in a hermitage alone. Uh, And I'd come back just sort of glowing like a bliss ninny for the next couple weeks. But when people would look at me, I remember again and again this happened. They said, Richard, you look sad. Hmm. And I said, oh, my gosh, do I? Because, in fact, I'm feeling exactly the opposite. And I don't know how that transferred to my face as sadness. But when you live at this deep time, deeper level of communion or love or grace or whatever you want to call it, there is a heaviness to it that, Is the rest of the world not seeing what I'm seeing? Why are they so caught up in trivialities? And why are they making one another suffer so much? So it's the strangest combination 
of being able to hold deep sadness and deep contentment at the mm. very same time. Mm. And so I, I discovered that in myself, in my, my most uh, wonderful moments were also my most sad moments. Almost that, mm. why doesn't everybody know this? You know, <laughs> Why doesn't everybody know what I'm experiencing now? Which leads you to a kind of participation in what I called earlier the one sadness. Uh, mm. That your very fact of enjoying grace and love uh, carries with it a dark side. That I, I didn't deserve to know this. I didn't earn this. And most people think I'm crazy if I try to talk about it. So the two intense emotions very often coexist in, in the contemplative mind. So that's what taught me this both-and worldview. Yeah. That opposites do not uh, contradict one another. <laughs> in fact, they complement and deepen one another. You know, we just, we have about, we just have about five, six, seven more minutes. Um, sure, and take whatever you want. It's a big, want. wonderful conversation. Just a couple more questions. I, um, sure. I don't want to end, but, so recently I was, uh, I took a break. Uh, I, I was really, I got some rest that I needed badly, and I was staying at a retreat center, and there was, um, Actually, it was a meditation session I went to, mm-hmm. and uh, and the person who was leading it read a passage from your book, um, Falling Upward, and read the line. And it was about facing your shadow side as the only way mm-hmm. to get bigger and yep, deeper. Yep. And uh, and there was this sentence that I couldn't stop thinking about. And I said, I'm going to interview yeah. that guy in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to ask him about this. <laughs> what? I can't wait to hear what it is. <laughs> I have prayed for years for one good humiliation a day. Oh, yeah. And then oh, I must watch true. my reaction to it, which sounds so uncomfortable. There's nothing yeah. in me <laughs> that wants no, to pray for one good humiliation a day. <laughs> I just said that to that, that group of millennials two weeks ago. Yeah. You know, some years ago, I started recognizing that I was getting an awful lot of adulation and praise and some people treating me far more importantly than I deserved. And I realized I was growing used to it, <laughs> that the ego just loves all of this admiration and, and projection, and a lot of it was projection. And I, I didn't want fame and well-knownness and guru status to totally destroy me. And so for me, this became a a necessity that I had to watch how do I react to not getting my way to people not agreeing with me to people not admiring me and there's plenty of them uh, and that I actually needed that and so I do I still I ask God for one good humiliation a day and I usually get it <laughs> <laughs> one hate letter or whatever it might be um, and then what I have to do, Krista, is I have to watch my reaction to it. Mm-hmm. And I, I got to be honest with you, my inner reaction, I'm not proud to tell you, is, is defensive, is that's not true, 
you don't understand me. You know, I can just see how well defended my ego is. And of course, even your critics, and I have plenty of them, uh, at least 10 to 20% of what they're saying is usually true. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll, I'll recognize that very thing she's so angry at me for saying. I really could have said it better. And I didn't use the right word. Uh, Now, a lot of Christians are trained to be what we call word police. Mm. (laughs) They're always getting you on the right word. Uh, We call it political correctness today. And it does drive you crazy after a while. But um, so I try to learn from my critics. And they're often the best of teachers. It's why my later books, to be perfectly honest, the books I've written in the last eight years are much better than my earlier books. And if that's true, the nuancing you see in my choice of vocabulary is from criticism, frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, um, there's a question. I think this may be on your website. So, so let me start this way. I, I, I often, I, I, I often um, come to this point in a conversation as we're ending, and and we'll ask this huge unanswerable question, but just where somebody would start about how your sense of what it means to be human has hmm. changed, has has evolved, or is evolving. It. It seems to me that you know you said right at the beginning of our conversation that our that that what it means to be human and our and our sense of God is or that 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 a sense of God is all wrapped up with what it means to be human. I there's this question on your website and I kind of feel like it's connected to this, um, but I'd like for you to think to reflect on it what it means. In any case, what if changing our perception of God has the potential to change everything? Uh, that's on the back of this book that came out today, The okay. Divine Dance. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, the Latin poet Terence is supposed to have said, nothing truly human is abhorrent to me. I think it was quoted in Night of the Iguana, that movie. Hmm. Nothing truly human is abhorrent to me. I think the truly human is always experienced in vulnerability, in mutuality, in reciprocity, which is why I love such a notion of a give-and-take God who pulls us into this divine dance or this giving and taking. When, When human beings try to deny their own vulnerability, even from themselves, when they cannot admit weakness, neediness, hurt, pain, suffering, sadness, they become very unhuman um, and not very attractive. They don't, you would, they don't change you. They don't invite you. Uh, I think that's why Brene Brown, perhaps you've interviewed yes, her. Yes, I have. Mm-hmm. Why her work is having such influence. Because mm. like few other people, She has brought this central, for me as a Christian, central divine gospel notion of vulnerability to really begin to make sense to a lot of people. So um, that's why I'm anxious to 
to present the vulnerable God, which for a Christian was supposed to have been imaged on the cross. But again, we made it into a, a transaction, as we said before when we talked about the atonement. Transaction isn't vulnerability anymore, really. Uh, but vulnerability transforms you. you. You can't be in the presence of a truly vulnerable, honestly vulnerable person and not be affected. Uh, I right. think that's the way we are meant to be in the presence of one another. Hmm. I think you've, you've written that the Franciscans put exclamation points after some of the most counter, counterintuitive assertions of the gospel, like the last shall be first and the first shall be yes, last. Yeah. <laughs> and when I am weak, I am strong. Yeah, there they are. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you how well you... <laughs> You deserve your reputation, Krista. You, you've read me, at least, in terms of my most important points. Thank you. Well, it was a real pleasure and an honor, and I'm so glad to have finally done this. And finally, I'm, I know. We've had so many people also write to us. We were talking about it in our meeting on Monday, and somebody said, I can't wait when we have this up, and we can write to them and say, we have done him. He's on the <laughs> Thank you, Krista. Yeah. Thank you. I'm honored. Well, We'll let you know what's happening with this, and uh, I'm very grateful to you for, for, for accepting this invitation. Thank you for inviting me. I'm honored. God bless. <laughs> God bless. Thank you. Bye-bye.